Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. All right. Well, welcome back to the Forest Overstory podcast. It is February, and theoretically speaking, there is a light at the end of the tunnel for winter. Uh, spring's just around the corner, at least I hope so. I hope all of our listeners are having a great new year so far and, and staying active. For those of you that own or, or manage forest land, I hope your winter projects are going well, whether it's planting trees or pruning or even collecting maple sap and making syrup, whatever it is. I hope it's going well. Uh, we have a really great episode in store today, but first, introductions. Uh, as always, I'm your host, uh, Patrick Schultz with WCU Extension, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by a co-host today. My colleague, Kevin Zobris, is here. I help out. Kevin, I'm sure uh, a lot of people know who you are uh, through your programming, but uh, why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Thanks, Patrick. Well, I'm Kevin Zobrist. Uh, like Patrick, I'm an extension forester, and I serve a big chunk of Northwest Washington, uh, mostly the Puget Sound area counties, so Pierce, King, Snohomish, Skagit, and also up in the islands, Island County and San Juan County. And I've been with WSU for wow, over 15 years now doing this, and I love it. I still think extension work is the best job in the world and very thankful that you have invited me to help participate in this podcast. Well, I'm pumped to have you on board. And actually, even before we logged on today, I was thinking, how long has Kevin been here? I probably shouldn't wager a guess because I didn't want to, I didn't want to offend you if I'd said something like 25 years. I know it's not 25 years. <laughs> I had thought it was 12. So I was pretty dang close. Uh, but I'm very excited to have you on, and especially given today's guest, uh, this episode is a real uh, sort of cougar fest, for lack of a better term. Uh, we are joined by a former WCU Extension Forester, and I would dare to say even a, a little bit of a legend. At least that's how it felt when I came on the scene. I, I heard so much about this uh, person and all the work they did. Uh, in the Extension Forestry Program. We have with us today Arno Bergstrom. Arno, how are you doing? Great. It's great to be with you. It's uh, it's really great to have you on. Uh, we had been thinking about this for really a while, uh, particularly having you and, and Don Hanley on. Don's another Extension Forester or, or former uh, Extension Forester who unfortunately couldn't make it today. Um, but just wanted to have you on to kind of talk uh, legacy a little bit, the history of the Extension Forestry Program. Uh, you know, it's been around for a while, uh, and I'm sure it's looked different over the years. So just, I know Kevin and I kind of want to pick your brain on that um, and some of the stuff you're doing now as well. Um, but why don't we get started? Just uh, tell us maybe a little about yourself and, you know, how you got into forestry and more particularly Extension Forestry. Well, I'll try to, I can talk a lot, but I'll try to be brief. I, uh, <laughs> I grew up in, on a farm in Southern Minnesota and, uh, we, it was, uh, we, we were kind of row croppers. We had poultry and feeder hogs. And, uh, and, uh, whenever my dad wanted to find out where I was, he always knew to 
check the grove or the woods. We had eight acres of, of hardwoods mostly. And that's where I spent all my time. And we also spent a lot of time um, is out in the plains of uh, along the Minnesota River. But, um, uh, and we traveled quite a bit in the summer when the crops were kind of left to grow on their own. And we'd be in the Rocky Mountains and uh, visit national forests, national parks and whatnot. And so I guess I kind of fell to kind of a uh, an interest in uh, natural resources and you know, as, as at, a, at an early early age, and of course, I was I think I was pretty naive about what what forestry really was, but I didn't really care. And uh, so, anyhow, I I, uh, I chose not to take over the family farm and instead go to college and and study forestry. And uh, I graduated from the uh, University of Minnesota in 1973, so 50 years ago, and. Uh, at that time, there were there were a lot of uh, veterans coming back from Vietnam. I did not serve. I, I, um, and uh, but the veterans uh, that were coming out of the college uh, there and everywhere for that matter, um, the jobs that were there, they they got the veterans preference. I was I was mostly interested in going public sector, DNR or national national you know uh, forest service or something like that, and but. Um, and I'll connect this back to my growing up, but but as uh, as a, a farm boy, I was very involved in the 4-H program, and uh, I'd gotten to know the extension forestry specials, specialists at the University of Minnesota, and uh, not realizing, you know, that oh, there are extension foresters, and uh, uh, that led me to. Because at the time I came out uh, uh, or finished my degree to get a job in in extension anywhere, pretty much in the United States, you had to have a master's degree. So then I I, I got a master's degree specifically with with uh, in pursuit of a de- of a position somewhere um, in uh, in the United States <laughs> in in extension forestry, and uh, so I ended up. Uh, getting the job as a Pierce County, started out as a Pierce County uh, extension uh, forester. And I, I got that job in uh, 1978, uh, November of 78 is when I arrived. So I think it started December 1st. But anyhow, I, uh, and that's where the, my career started. Arno, what was your first impression of Washington and Washington forests coming from Minnesota. Uh, I tell you what, what's yeah? What was my first impression of of being here, having been trained in the Lake States? I I know exactly if it's still alive. I know where the only Douglas fir is on the St. Paul campus at the University of Minnesota. It was right near the a dorm that I resided in, in my first year there, and it was it was pathetic by our standards here in terms of Western Washington, or even for that matter, Eastern Washington. But um, um, I was I was really kind of uh, lost when you get right down to it. What was interesting about about that is is that I got to know, um, uh, uh, well, at the time, Soil Conservation Service Forester, who uh, had studied, um, had spent a lot of time in the in the Dakotas, and but he got his degree in, at WSU, and and he was. Because the Inland Empire is, of course, different than the Puget Sound Basin, so we kind of nurtured each, our, 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 you know, we kind of 
agreed that we would back each other up and because we had to learn forestry all over again because it wasn't what we what we had learned um, when we were in college. So so I, I was intimidated, I have to admit, but, you know, I, uh, I was a, a pretty quick, quick study on it. And, uh, and it's, I, as I like to tell people, it's my trees are my nerd. So I, uh, I wanted, I wanted to, I really wanted to be successful. The person I had replaced who had been in the job for almost a career in Pierce County um, had, uh, he had kind of done more of a service forestry, like a DNR. He was helping people in writing forest stewardship or forest management plans for them. And when I was hired, they specifically um, didn't want me to do that. They wanted me, me to be an educator. And so, um, and I had been doing some of that. So, because uh, my my extension career actually started in Northern Minnesota. I was, a, believe it or not, a logging harvesting specialist and I worked with doing educational safety program, educational programs for for lo, uh, the logging industry in, North, in the Arrowhead region of northern Minnesota. Um, that was the job I had before I, I, I transferred out here to Washington. So I'm kind of curious because, I mean, so many people that go into forestry um, – see themselves like you said out out in public lands uh you know when i went into forestry my thought was i'm gonna somehow end up living in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere managing you know five thousand acres and never seeing anyone again which just sounded kind of nice um but it's funny as i as i, I kind of similar to you as i kept going and i learned more about especially extension jobs and how much i enjoyed working with people and helping people learn about forest management uh ultimately choosing teaching sort of overdoing um what brought you to that i mean what was the experience that made you think you would rather do you'd rather be educator uh than uh you know out there marking trees uh you know well when i got my my bachelor's i i actually my first job a non-extension job was in the college of forestry at the university of minnesota and so I was there during the, the outbreak of Dutch elm disease and uh, in the state office um, in the college, the extension uh, forestry office. And then I also had a little bit of a background and did a lot of work with Christmas trees when I was a student. And I kind of sort of kind of became the, uh, with some staffing changes, I kind of filled in as a, Christmas tree specialist. So I was doing a lot of uh, extension delivery or educational programming. Um, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth in terms of the question you've asked. I, and I, I was, you know, responding to all the calls for Dutch elm disease and talking to citizens and, um, you know, basically, uh, well, you know, that's where my even though I wasn't didn't have an extension appointment when I was a graduate assistant, um, I was I was doing the work and um, I would even travel around the state a bit uh, doing uh, especially Christmas tree type stuff and and so um, I think that's where I I developed that oh this is this is something that I like to do uh, I can't say that I know how good I 
at it I was, but I, I really, I liked doing it. So at that point, so that's, that's pretty much how that happened. And that just got transferred with me when I came, came out here. I just brought it with me. Arno, you mentioned the kind of the beginning of the outbreak of Dutch Elm disease. And now that we've just heard that emerald ash borer has been found in the Pacific Northwest, which means it's been here already for a few years. Do you have any wisdom, kind of lessons learned from Dutch Elm disease that could be applied here in the Northwest as far as managing for emerald ash borer? Well, what's my answer is, is, is I guess, pretty... Uh, I guess pretty simple because when all the elm trees die, guess what they planted? Ash. <laughs> they planted ash. Okay, because it's indigenous there. All right, and so now they have the ash borer. My, uh, I have a sister that lives in a in a community with where it, it's decimated all their all their 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 shade trees. It's she lives in in a, a small town a community, but um, all all their ash trees are dead and. Um, so the idea is, I think we we don't know what the next um, disease or insect will be. We we probably, but we need to think more about diverse, more diversity than than simply planting a single species. That's I guess the insight that I that I have because I was, um, I mean, Dutch elm disease was devastating. I think they even did a, a survey. I remember um, uh, Dave Barber and, I, uh, and others are talking about that. There wasn't a survey of the elm trees in the state of Washington because they there there are there are some here, and some of them may have actually ex- escaped uh, Dutch elm disease because they're so far and few between, you know. But but uh, uh, you know so but but the more important thing is to have I think a more uh, a more diverse uh, you know. Uh, a shade tree, if, if, if you want to call it that. I grew up with groves of elm trees, and uh, it really changed. It really changed the uh, makeup of the hardwood forest. Yeah, I emerald ash borer is a, a big scary thing, and it's just kind of another. And what seems like a long list of forest health issues um, to worry about in Washington right now. Um, I I wonder, Arno, when you came here and started thinking about an extension forestry program uh you know what what did you see were the biggest needs when you started was it forest health was were we kind of dealing with the same stuff or was it more um kind of what you're doing in minnesota helping people uh log and harvest or just something completely different just kind of curious if that has evolved in the last you know few decades yeah. Yeah. In my mind, I, I guess it kind of your question fits something I, I really wanted to share. But and um, basically, I guess once when I got when I got to Pierce County, I got acquainted with. Uh, uh, well, there was a, a DNR uh, service forester uh, who took me under his wing um, and then uh, a soil conservationist with the at the time was still called the SCS. And, um, and, uh, so they, they helped me kind of get my footing in terms of extension programming. Um, and of course, uh, the, the state specialist, Joe B. Haley, and, uh, and he was replaced by Don Hanley. 
Um, and, you know, so the focus was on, as we call them today, family forced landowners. That's a better phrase than what it was when it was called NIPF. But um, anyhow, the uh, what what I in those early um, I'd say in the in the first eight years or so, eight to ten years of my my career, well, I also transitioned to, to become an area extension agent in both King and in Pierce County. So my my uh, area got bigger, but um, we just what we but what we were doing then we were kind of doing it under the old. Uh, you know, the, what created the extension in, at the National Extension Forestry Program, and that was to, you know, urge or, or through education somehow uh, help private forest landowners um, become, um, you know, do a better job of managing their property because they, of, just like nationwide, they own so much of the land, the private family forest landowners, they own a really high percentage of the land and what what i've what we we I prob- we probably ended up doing is we we had kind of a list of enforced health insects diseases um was like one of those topics but we had this this list of topics that we kind of rotated through you know forest management how to uh you know select a logger you know we did some stuff on uh you know, how to transfer, you know, the whole idea of estate planning before some of the other more sophisticated programs came along. And so we had this this uh, rotation of, of topics that we would do. Some of it would be classrooms, some of it would be field days, some of it would be a combination of, of, of the two. And um, I don't know, the, conserv- the soil conservationist, I think about eight years into my career in Pierce County, he, he, he was older and he was going to retire. And I, uh, I, and of course, I even kept the coffee cup at his office because I was there a lot, hung out a lot. <laughs> and even though as a soil conservationist, he was really into forestry. He was basically a forester, even though he didn't st- study it in college. But he, uh, he was, we were standing there and his, he had his, all these, you know, as, as, as an SCS office would have, these, um, you know, rows of green file cabinets in his cubicle and they're they're full of plans and and i turned and looked or looked at him and i his name is max fulner and i said max uh, uh you've you've prepared all these plans for these forest landowners because that's what he was doing in part i said what do you know about what's happened did did any of them implement their plans and he he it was partly because he was retiring too and we were close friends, but he kind of got, I'm not saying he got, he, he didn't cry, but he got a little, a little soft-spoken as I can too. And, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of, because I was asking a question that was about, you know, what, you know, what, what did he accomplish in his career? I didn't mean, mean to pose it in that way, but, you know, I think he, he took it that way. Right. And, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was honestly saddened by the fact that, uh, that he'd done all this work and probably a lot of it really didn't result in anything unless it, unless it involved a cost share, you know, but as far as, uh, you know, helping to, you know, transfer knowledge, you know, educate people because we were all working together, the DNR and uh, SCS or now NRCS uh, 
we were all, you know, hand in hand on this thing. And that was that was a moment. That was a turning for a moment, uh, turning point for me in terms of how I viewed what we were doing. Arno, it's interesting that you've brought up uh, this idea of plans and what does that result in? Just yesterday, I was looking at statistics from the coach planning courses that I've done. And uh, for folks listening, we're going to get into more detail about coach planning and what that is. But I noticed that, that we had a 34% plan completion rate within the first year having after taking the course. But we had well over 80% of new stewardship practices implemented. And we've done some prior studies that found there was no statistically significant difference in terms of whether or not people implement new practices on the ground, whether they've done a plan or not coming out of the education program. And so that kind of begs the question of, are stewardship plans the right metric in terms of what we want to see? That seems to be what the public agencies and the federal agencies want. You know, They want to count the widget. But is that really a good indicator of our impact through extension forestry? Oh, I, I'm not surprised um, at all, Kevin, with what you're revealing, what you're finding. I, I think, um, I think you're right on. I, I we did a, well, don't want to get into, it, but some of the evaluations that I did early on was. Um, where uh, where plans have been prepared for people uh, by a consultant or NRCS or the DNR or anybody, the the the, the family forest landowner uh, didn't necessarily even know where the plan was, let alone what was in it. Um, so I think I think what you're describing is the exercise. That's the value of coach planning, and that is that they're whether they're taking it through your, you know, your, uh, your, 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 your media platform or doing it face to face, they're, they're, they're actually sitting in their seats, so to speak, um, hearing all these presenters or presentations or from coaches. That's where the word coach came from. Um, and, and it, after a while, it, it starts to sink in. It really does sink in that, oh, Okay, um, and that's that's as opposed to uh, someone who simply has a plan prepared for them, and uh, especially for a family forest landowner, it's it it you know how, how much how much ownership do they have in it you know and I think I think the three of us can agree that when they've participated in when they've participated in the learning experience more so than just even the plan and the production of a plan, they, they have, they have ownership in it. And that's, that's what your, I think that's what your, um, uh, your evaluation or analysis has revealed. Yeah. And, and just to give a little background to any listeners that aren't familiar, um, forest stewardship coach planning is what we like to call it the sort of flagship course for WCU Extension Forestry. And as Arno's describing, it's, you know, it's multiple weeks of learning from experts on these different elements of 
forest management that all happened to coincide with the development of a forest stewardship plan. So you literally write a plan as you're going through the course, learning from experts, getting a site visit. There's a field trip too. So it's very immersive. Um, and, you know, it sounds to me, Arno, like you're, you're saying that the, the impetus, because we haven't mentioned this, but Arno created this class. He's the creator of coach planning. Um, and, and the impetus of that was that exact idea that just handing a landowner a plan and saying, okay, here's what you should probably do with your property. Just, it doesn't really get it done if people aren't out there developing it and creating this sort of living document really is what a plan is anyway, uh, themselves. Yes, there were. And when, when, when the idea came developed and I, I need to share that with you, cause this, this will be the record of how it happened. Um, um, you know, a lot of people, well, I don't know how, well, when I was uh, in those early days of my career in Pearson King County, um, there was, a, and I don't know that it's changed a whole lot, but, you know, because of federal funding, we were, you know, there was a, a lot of pressure, a lot of interest in more, more in new audiences and diverse audiences. And so when I would have my um, annual review, that would be a topic of discussion, you know, and as it would have been for any any faculty member at the time in the 80s and the 90s and, and probably still is today. But what I what I was observing in my f- former, my NRCS friend and others, Basically, we, we had a we had a following. Anytime we wanted to do a tour or or a, or a, a, a one off class or something like that, pe- the same people would show up. Maybe a few new people, and so of course, it, so I was was thinking, well, how do we get new audiences? That was kind of in the back of my of my head too. So um, I uh, and I'm going to kind of get into it, guys. But um, what inspired me was a change in the, in the 1990 uh, farm bill that goes back a ways. <laughs> and what they did is the far, 1990 farm bill, uh, basically the phrase for stewardship program was, was, was in the legislation. You know, I don't know how it got there, why it got there. And it was a big, it was a, to me, it was a, it was a, kind of a, a huge change in in the direction for extension forestry since it was created in the 30s and I forget the year but it, it wasn't with it was something that was added later you know it's all agricultural pro- educational programming and technology transfer and then they wanted to address um, all these private forest landowners but what I what I liked about that when I read about uh, read up on it a little bit was uh, uh, Forest stewardship, that's, that's an action phrase, you know, and, um, um, and we want our landowners to be forest stewards. That's how I saw it when I interpreted it. Now you can read, you know, I found a paper, an abstract on, you know, kind of chronicling the history of it because I needed to have my, my time frame straight, but, um, you know, they wanted us at that time to, you know, this new program is going to, you know, get more plans written and enhance the productivity 
of timber, fish, and wildlife and uh, protect our forests from damage caused by fire, insects, disease, and the weather, <laughs> all these things, you know. But I just like the phrase, it, it reinvigorated me. Okay, so what did I do with that? And I can't tell you how I found out about it, but if you, we're all, I think all three of us are a little bit familiar uh, with the state of Montana. Well, it's a big state. And they didn't have, the only extension forester they had was a specialist. And at the time, the, at this time, the extension specialist was a guy by the name of Bob, Bob Logan, who had been a county extension forester in Oregon, I forget where. And he, he came up with a, a program, uh, basically a forest stewardship program, and there, his biggest challenge was is that because it's a big state and people and it's and it's it's an, and not a you know I forget what their population is now but you know it's maybe north of a million people or so um, when the tourists aren't there um, but but the idea was how do I deliver um, an extension program and so what he he did is he uh, he recruited and and uh, I guess oriented or trained some consultants and they delivered uh, uh, the, uh, the forest stewardship workshops as they were referred to uh, at, at various geographical locations around the, around the state where they could get the, uh, the ranchers and forest landowners to, to attend. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the concept was that they would, with, with the help of, of that, uh, uh, consultant, they would write. They would write their own forest stewardship plan. Well, gosh, my goodness, that was that was like wow. So I got, I probably got on the phone, but I I know I probably raced up to UW to visit with Don Hanley about it, and uh, and we kind of, we sat there and you know, well, the DNR is going to be involved with this because they're getting state and federal funding and. And so then, uh, the in the South South, South Puget Sound uh, regional office, the the person who had just gained the position for forest stewardship for the region was uh, I'm thinking thinking my name uh, Don Theo. And so then we got we got we all got together and we came up with this the basic program as it was for years and years and years, and. Uh, uh, we started doing coach planning, eight or nine classes, um, a, a field visit or a field day on a Saturday, and then uh, of course the, uh, the DNR took a lead on doing site visits. I sometimes went along as well. And first we did one, and then we did two, and then we did, and, and I'm talking about per year. And then we were, I think we were up to four or five a year. I think that was where we maxed out. And then we realized we, it was too much. You know, it's, it takes up a lot of weekends and evenings to do that. You don't have life, but that's, that's basically how it was created. So it's, I borrowed an idea and modified it from Montana state university. And, um, and we brought together a team and, uh, and we did, we did involve consultants in the beginning. I, I think it sort of fell off a little bit. Um, because 
and there was a lot of controversy about what this thing that Washington State was doing. I, I heard, you know, I didn't travel to D.C. and talk to anybody in USDA, but but there were some really some questions in the, I think the, uh, what was it, the National Association of Consulting Foresters, they had some questions about it too, because what are we doing? Are we taking business away from them? But but I always argued that, that, um, um, that uh, the people we were typically meeting didn't necessarily, they were, they were probably the least likely forest landowners to ever hire a consultant. And if they did, it would be when they were going to do a harvest. And, and that's, of course, a very critical time to involve a consultant to get a good logging contractor and to get the most money for the wood or the timber sale if you're going to sell a, a stumpage sale. So that's kind of how it all came together. And then, and then it was like, it was like a floodgate. Uh, I was, we quickly went through in Pearson County, we quickly went through all the people that we would expect, you know, were our following and, and it, we figured, well, maybe it will taper off, you know, well, it didn't. And tell you, we advertised for stewardship coach planning, we'd get a whole new cohort of people, people we'd never met before. So now going back to my comment about new audiences, we were getting new audiences where we never, you know, I would have to say we never had them before. Um, at least I wasn't very successful in really garnering totally new audiences. And yes, some diverse, some diverse, more diverse audiences as far as the things that um, we, you know, the, that we strive to do. Um, and, uh, you know, and it really, and I, I, I would argue, and I, I hope it's true to say this, Kevin and, and, and Patrick, to this very day, it's, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. I, I don't think it has changed uh, all that much because what you're describing is very much my experience and I'm guessing Patrick's experience as well. All of my coach planning classes sell out and sometimes very quickly we've had in the past yeah. couple of years where the waiting list from one class is enough to fill the next class. Uh, so it continues to be very popular. Right. And one of the things that I observe is this, is what you're just mentioning is the diversity of people who are taking the course. We get people with a thousand acres. We get people with a quarter acre and they all come out of the course saying mm -hmm. that that was really useful for me. We get people who just bought their forest land. In fact, we get kind of a bimodal distribution of people who just bought their forest land in the last year versus people who've had their forest land for 20 years or more. And both groups seem to benefit considerably. What I hear from the people who had their forest land for a long time consistently is I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wish I'd taken this 20 years ago. Hmm. Right. When you were starting out with, Coach Plan, did you see this same diversity in terms of ownership size and length of, of tenure of ownership? Um, well, you, you know, there's always been, um, uh, in terms of size, yes. Uh, some large landowners and, you know, uh, uh, definitely small you know, under, under five acres, uh, because part of it was people, you know, they, the, 
I guess the I, I like to I like to think that the you know the phrase of forest stewardship you know resonates with people and they go what is this and it sounds interesting and they're drawn to it and they I, I think over the course of my career delivering that program because I always had a you know people would show up that hadn't registered because we did you know I, I did charge a fee because we had a lot of materials and stuff and and I I told people you know they weren't too sure and I said well um well just sit through the first class and make a decision and I over the course of my uh uh like a decade of delivering it even though I tapered off a bit at the end um I only had one person that said no I I'm not really that's not what I what I thought it was uh, but most people that, you know, came in and took a spot, um, uh, unbeknownst to me, but, or well, they identified themselves, they, they would go, this is exactly what I want, you know, so I can only think of one, I can remember it, one individual that said, no, this isn't at all what I wanted, it's not what I expected. And, and, and that's telling too, because, um, uh, you know, there's just something about it. And, and, and quite honestly, I'm going back to, I guess, a comment about my career. This this really rejuvenated me in terms of my work. I was, you know, I'd lost some passion about doing the topical rotation back in the uh, late 70s and 80s, you know, where, where you just, oh, we haven't done this topic for a while. Let's do a thinning of workshop. Uh, let's do, you know, in a field day, you know, and stuff like that. And, um, but, um, but this, this was different. This was exciting. I felt, well, one of the, there were, there were several issues and it was even a a discussion on campus. Uh, Well, would landowners want to, when in the very beginning, would they want to take a, uh, you know, an eight week course, uh, you know, you know, consecutive Thursdays or whatever, you know, would they stand for that? Well, you know, a lot of our, we always talk about our, for family forest landowners as an aging population. Well, I mean, look at the master gardener program. So I'm going to borrow from that. And I did. The idea is they want to learn. They, adults, especially, especially maybe when they're retired or have more time, they, they do want to learn. And of course, if they're, they are retired, they're thinking about legacy. They want to, they want to pass it along to their children or grandchildren or their niece, if they don't have any, other errors, you know, and that's what inspired the whole idea that you, you basically pay, you know, one registration for your family, whether you do that or not anymore is, is unimportant. But the idea is we wanted them all there. You wanted what you didn't want to be just quite honestly, the, the patriarch of the family taking the course the, the, the husband and wife need to be there. Their children should be there if they're interested so, you know, so I was trying to approach this from a, you know, really as an educational program. I, you know, going back to your question about or statement about how important are the plans. Yeah, plans and plan completions, a great metric. But but really, that was that's really not what it's about. It never it never really was. And, you know, for the DNR, not to be critical of them, that's that's what they want to count. That's what they want to report to state and USDA, um, 
But really, you know, we were always pushed as extension educators. I remember Linda Fox, she would always ask that question, our former director of extension. So what, Arno? So what? You had all these programs, you, hmm. you know, and I think quite honestly, Patrick and Kevin, you've gotten particularly good at answering the so what question. Yeah, I remember when I first started Linda Kirk Fox drilling that into us new faculty. It's all about impacts, impacts. impacts. That's right. And what are your indicators? Uh, plan completion is, it's just an, as using a lot old logic model thing, it's just an output, you know. Um, having the classes, okay. But the what you're doing, Kevin, what we are all doing really changes people. It changes how they think, how they view their forest. Just to learn the different trees is absolutely amazing to some people. They didn't know they don't know one tree from the other. And I know we're probably because you know it's you know it's me. I can talk a lot, but because we're, we're at well, we've been on together for an hour here. But um, I actually, in terms of my current um, uh, work here. I have, uh, I'm training uh, forest stewards to be uh, for the park system now. And we're doing a four, a four day curriculum. Um, they're not doing a plan, um, but they help with the plan and help with planning. So I'm, I've actually implemented a, a, a version of a coach planning in my current uh, job. And like we did a, we started, we were going to start in March of uh, 2020 and we did, and then COVID hit. So we, we didn't get back to it until last year, but I've, I've got, um, I don't know, I think there were 27 in the class. Some of them were already four stewards because there are people that I've been working with for years who are retired volunteers. Um, but um, we had, uh, well, I don't know, probably 18 17, 18 of them have actually worked in the field with with me and uh, some other members of my my group, Naturusus group, and working on you know things related to the forest stewardship plan, implementation of of various things. So, well, Arna, this is a great segue to talking a little bit more about your current position. So it sounds like about. 10 years ago, you transitioned from WSU to Kitsap County. And one of the things that I think you were involved with just a few years ago was working with a park in South Kitsap County. And the reason I bring this up is because over the past 15 years, what you dealt with there at the park in Kitsap County has become a huge issue for local state and now even our national parks in Washington. And mm -hmm. that is forest disease, specifically laminated root rot seems to be the most common issue in some of these older stands. And it's happening around high use recreation areas like campgrounds and it puts park managers in a very difficult situation if you go in there and do what we know we can do to mitigate the disease silviculturally well, that's going to involve removing some trees and the public uh, gets very upset if you leave it alone someone's going to get seriously injured or even killed and 
course, that's not acceptable. And then what a lot of parks are just defaulting to then is closing off campgrounds and recreation areas. And we've seen that at several state parks. We've seen that at local parks. And it's even going on right now at Mount Rainier National Park. But you took a much more proactive approach in Kitsap County to address this in an area that was very visible to the public. So can you tell us about that, what you did, why you did it, and then what were the outcomes of that? Well, there, there were a, a couple of, uh, Kevin, a couple of uh, instances where um, I can, I can even remember when I, cause I was in Pearson King and then the, the last, um, uh, I ended my career in Kitsap County. That's actually how I ended up working here. Um, and they, they, they've had some problems in several of their parks. And, uh, I remember getting together with a risk manager and they would drive me out and show me this park in South Kitsap is one of them where you're describing the specific one, but there was another one, a smaller one. And, and they had hired consultants and the consultants made recommendations and um, they even brought in a, a DNR forester and they had the same recommendation. And I just turned to the risk manager and I said, well, why haven't you done anything? Why are you, why are you, you should be showing me maybe what they, what, what's been done rather than the, the same problem. In other words, um, and, and, and one, in one of the parks, a, a part of a dead tree actually killed someone and uh, uh, left the park and uh, killed someone outside the park. And, and I'm looking at him going, why haven't you done anything about this? But, but it's sort of this paralysis kind of thing where, where, um, you know, they, you know, they're concerned about just public sentiment in general. I mean, a, a dead setting tree is, is habitat, you know, um, you know, it has, there's, there, and when they fall, they fall. And then it's, if it's a big tree, it can be really useful. Habitat is large woody debris. But the idea is there are places just like you described where um, it's, it's a hazard tree, even if it's, Quite honestly, even if it's alive, it might be, might be um, infected, say, with root rot. It's just we can't really tell for sure because it's maybe bordering an area where there's a root rot uh, center or area. And, um, and, and, and I could, there's still examples of that in the, in the park system in, in this county. But um, um, so one of the, one of the, um, one of the benefits of just thinning in general is, is to enhance the vigor of those trees that remain. Um, and the thinning that I'm doing is more selective um, in that we, we want diverse, uh, more diversity in our parks. Um, so uh, uh, we try to we're not we're not harvesting uh, species that that are more minor in the in the in trying to you know usually it's where we have more for Douglas fir than anything else so that's that's the the target species and, and uh, lamae root rot is uh, you know uh, 
pretty, uh, both Douglas fir and both Douglas fir and hemlock are pretty susceptible to that. So, but one of the things to uh, kind of resist it is, is for the tree to have uh, the uh, the more the most base it, it can have, and the, you want to you want to enhance the vigor of that tree so that it can thwart off um, an attack and uh, from uh, insects and, and disease. And uh, but but you know if it's a park, you don't you don't log in a park, and so it's uh, that makes. Um, uh, an overstocked public park uh, more vulnerable to a disease and insect and, and fire for that matter, really. Um, so, and they finally, they finally, actually, when I did the thinning in the, the park, the larger park, the 200 acre park, it was like uh, they were really worried and, and uh, they, 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 I hadn't planned to do it because they, there was this kind of this um, reluctance to, to, to do anything, and, not, and I understand it. I'm not. It sounds like I'm being critical, but, but they'd had plenty of people, and uh, tell them what needed to be done, and they st still didn't do it. And they fi they finally decided let's do it. And so, in 2017, we went. Uh, the contractor uh, that I work with went in there, and and we did a thinning um, in in that park. And uh, and of course you don't you can't you, we don't have X-ray vision so we can't see that every every tree we left was with health is healthy or not. Uh, uh, we did did do some things to try and determine you know how big an area we needed to uh, clear so that the trees that were left were are, uh, at least less likely to be in, in, infected with with root rot. And, and based on the years since then in observations, we've had some trees that have died, some that have blown over, but it's been minimal compared to the past. Well, Arno, I always like to end, uh, we are going to have to wrap up soon, unfortunately, um, but I like to end with a sort of call to action to some degree. Uh, it's certainly one of those would be to, to follow forestry.wsu.edu for a coach planning course. Uh, by the time this comes out, our winter sessions will be started and fully booked. But I know there's some classes in the spring and there will be some more in the fall. But I, I wonder, too, if uh, there are any parks that you could mention specifically, maybe where people could go and see some of that work that you've done. Yeah, um, during my my first my first year was just getting things set up. So I've got nine years of uh, thinning mm -hmm. that we've done. And we, we do have some rather large parks. There's one in the south end of, of the county, um, uh, close, so it's closer to Tacoma, that's called uh, Coulter Creek. And part of that park is also an, uh, connected to an, an old uh, former state park that became part of the park. It's called Square Lake. And that's the one I would focus on. Um, good access, really great access. And you can see a lot there. It's uh, just west of um, Highway 16 um, on the off Sedgwick, but anybody could Google it because it, 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 it's still it, it is it is there is a lake, a square lake, it's a beautiful lake, and and that one I'm 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 quite pleased with. Um, and then there's a park just west of Silverdale uh, called Newberry Hill Heritage Park, and it, it, very very good access. I'm thinking about access too, and. Uh, 
it's off Newberry Hill Road and uh, very easy to find. That, that's where I probably have done, I don't know, over 500 acres there. Of the thing. I didn't do it, obviously, the contractor did. But, um, and, you know, one of the things I guess I would like to say about this, these 10 years and in working with, with coach planning as I did, you know, if I knew today, if I knew then what I know today, having been an actual field forester in a sense, because what I've been doing is kind of a, uh, a staff of one and I usually have a summer intern. Um, you know, I would, I would say I, I would have a lot more to offer in terms of, you know, advice to a, a landowner that has 20 acres or 40 acres or even five acres. Because, you know, I, I spent my whole career as a as an educator and I did a little bit of field forestry in the very beginning, but, but you know, and quite honestly, when it comes to ecological forestry, I think it suits uh, family forest landowner very well. I think a lot of our, my belief is a lot of the family forest landowners really aren't interested in, in you know, doing big clear cuts or anything like that. And um, I was always so disappointed when they wouldn't even do any thinning. But I, what I'm saying is I didn't know what I know today to really tell that story and how they could do it and what it could mean and what the real benefits would be and potentially even economic returns, even though that may not be what would drive them to do it. Uh, but you can have a better and more healthy forest really a better wildlife habitat, all the things that, you know, every time I did the goal thing at the coach planning, you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, when I was doing those and Patrick, you remember it and Kevin too, probably, um, you know, timber production or cutting trees for lumber was, you know, not usually the, the, the number one thing that they were after, you know, as, as a forest landowner. And I don't know, maybe that's changed some, but, uh, Probably not, but but I, I think I could do a better job of, of talking people into doing something today than I did 20 years ago. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. And I can, I guess, uh, commiserate a little bit with that just in the last year or so, having taken over as, uh, you know, managing one of the properties for WSU here and doing a lot of restoration work on the ground. I mean, we're not really doing any harvesting or anything like that, but a lot of work that I think landowners would be doing, especially that noxious weed removal and just, oh, yeah. just hammering away at the woods and just sweating in the woods. And it's not that I would teach anything differently necessarily now, but it certainly draws that connection and you start to understand yeah. all the hours that go into it uh, and why someone would, wouldn't do it, frankly. Uh, sure. I get that. I get that yeah. completely. Yeah. The the noxious weeds are, you get more scotch broom and, you know, the the stuff that's already there tends to flourish for a while when you do a thinning because you, you got more sunlight hitting the ground and the, you open the roads up and stuff like that. So that's one of the, that's the really only, and a lot of people aren't happy with that, but of course they think it happens because of the thinning. It does, but the seed was already there in terms of scotch broom and, if the ivy was already there, it was already there. Of course, ivy doesn't need sunlight, and the blackberries were already there. But you know, but now they have more sunlight, that kind of thing. So well, this has been great fun. 
Yeah, and I was I, I really enjoyed this. I'm so glad we were able to get you on, Kevin. I'm really glad that you were able to join as well. Do you have any final thoughts, words? I, I do not, uh, other than to, to thank our guest Arno. It's been great to uh, have you on, and I'm really glad we we're able to capture some of the history of what continues to be our flagship program and to mm -hmm. learn a little bit more about how your career and how WSU Extension Forestry evolved over the last few decades. And what I wanted, what, what I wanted to say say to you, Kevin, was, um, and, and, and Patrick, but Kevin and I, you know, is, remember I was one of your advisors, career guidance people and all that, you know, but I'm very, I'm very proud of what you've achieved with, uh, and, and elevated the Forest Stewardship Coach Planning Program. You know, I think you've given it, you know, uh, you've made it really, uh, 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 I don't want to say better, you made it really more accessible to everybody. I, I have met countless people in, in, uh, in my job with, with parks that, uh, you know, they talk about you they've taken your class face-to-face uh, -face or, you know, online. And uh, uh, that's, you know, so, you know, I may have started it, but you guys are taking it to a whole nother level. And that's, that's, that makes me feel really, really good. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Arno. That's really great for us to hear. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you all. Uh, Forrest Overstory, diehards i appreciate you all tuning in uh for these episodes and please feel free to to share the word uh with your friends so more people can listen and uh we're gonna have a lot of more a lot more great guests uh in the in the coming months and I, i'm hoping kevin will be here to join me too uh it's been a really great episode so i want to thank arno again for for coming along and uh as always we will see you next month mm -hmm.